You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're joined today by Dr. Chris Murray. Chris is the director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, IHME, the University of Washington, and he's also there the chair and professor of the Health Metric Sciences Department. He's been a pioneer for several decades of quantitative methods used in evaluating health outcomes and uh, a close friend and ally of CSIS over the years. Chris, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure, Steve. Chris, we want to begin by talking a bit about what's come to be referred to as the Chris Murray model. You put out on March 26th a model that tried to look nationally in the United States, state by state. The first wave, you try and examine the first wave up through early August. And as I understand it, you, you sought to fill a gap. You wanted to state by state in a dynamic model that would draw data from China and Italy, but incorporate data that's coming forward in the United States and be able to identify what the gaps are likely to be in terms of ICU beds, general beds, ventilators and the like, estimate the peak period, mid-April it seemed to be where you settled at, and arrive at some estimates and some ranges of what the mortality was likely to be in this first wave up until August 4th, making adjustments as you went along. And um, this got, of course, great attention. And quite remarkably, this came to be embraced by the White House as a guide to what lies ahead in this first wave. I think that struck all of us as a very important development and a surprising one. So maybe I could come back to you and just say, well, how did this happen? How did it happen that the White House turned to you in the development of this model and embraced it, put it center stage so that here we are at at a critical moment trying to understand what is happening, and we, we're seeing White House briefings where the Chris Murray model is on the boards and it's being used in that way. Before we talk about the specifics and the likes, tell us how did that happen? Well, it's quite a tale. You know, we started off responding to our own hospital system coming to us saying, You guys do a lot of modeling at IHME, you know a lot about data. Can you help us plan for the surge? Because we need to know, you know, how many shifts that we need to plan for, how many ventilators do we need to plan for. And we want to plan for the worst, hope for the best, but we need some numbers. So we made a model, you know, basically a prototype of what people can see in the public domain. And then a series of other hospitals heard about our model through the grapevine and asked us to do the same thing for them. And we suddenly got overwhelmed with requests So we just decided we would do it for every state and get it out there so that people could start to plan. And that's the perspective we brought to the table is sort of a planner's perspective. What's going to happen, not what hypothetically will happen under different scenarios. So we put that out there on a Wednesday, I think, and very quickly different parts of the federal government reached out uh fema the department of defense and then the white house because they had not seen any state specific planning forecasts before there was models here and there different states had their own models new york had a model colorado had a model and 
suddenly there was an ability f to look across states at where there might be more demand compared to availability, and that was of great interest to the planners. And that triggered this series of conversations in very short order with the White House task force. And that's where I think they said this is a useful tool for them to think about those resource allocation decisions. Now, wasn't it a little bit surprising that nothing like this had come forward from U.S. agencies? You know, I, I yes, very surprising. But I think there's a reason why. And it comes back to the fundamental difference between our model and most of the infectious disease transmission models. Most of the transmission models up until that point had, you know, these big curves that go way up and then come down. But the, the coming down part is basically when we have failed, when most people have become infected. And you get the reduction, not because we're doing something to stop transmission. You get the reduction in those models largely because of there's nobody left to get infected. In those models, you end up with millions of deaths in the U.S., and, you know, it takes quite a while, depending on the person's model, to get to the peak. You know, the peaks in these existing models, still some out there, were in June, July or August. And then they peak because pretty much 80 percent, 70 percent of the U.S. is infected. Our model, which was a statistical one, said, no, you know, based on what we've seen in Wuhan and now what we're seeing in Italy and Spain, uh, we think that social distancing is actually going to put the brakes on transmission and you're going to have a much earlier peak and a much lower peak, still horrendous, but nowhere near the numbers that you saw in these sort of saturation models. So I think the reason the federal government and their transmission models from CDC and others weren't out there or being used for planning is that they have everybody in the country getting the saturation. And so then really there's no difference between a New York and another state in terms of likely need, it's just a question of timing because everybody was going to get infected at some point. It seems to me that looking back on this, that the value of what you did is several things. One, you filled a gap and you did a public service in putting a national state by state piece together. The proposition was forceful that social distancing can work. So it was dynamic in, in putting this proposition forward. You put forward the proposition, we have to admit that there are going to be significant numbers of deaths, but let's try to be rigorous in how we estimate those. And we have to plan for shortages. And it also motivated the president to extend the social distancing guidance until the end of April, which there was this resistance, this hesitation within the White House to take that step. Your model became an important prod in saying, yes, social distancing can work. Yes, we need to take that step. And forcing a sort of rec an acknowledgement of the reality of a some degree of failure in the sense that we're going to see real accumulation of deaths. Do you agree with that sort of summation? I think so. I think that that does fit the story. Uh, I think that there was a lot of these framing of these scenarios, like, you know, millions will die if you do nothing. So that's good for sounding the alarm, but not much on the sort of practicality, like what's going to happen in the near term. And by trying to fit a model to do that, I think we did put some boundaries on what's likely to occur. 
and that, you know, social distancing is the most effective vehicle right now controlling the arc of the epidemic. And on the other hand, we've got to help hospitals get ready for the surge, especially in the places that are going to have really big epidemics. Now, whenever you do models, of course, you're making assumptions and your levels of uncertainty, and you're going to invite a debate from other modelers. That's inevitable, right? Every time you put something out, you get a whole troop of others, other modelers coming scientists, data scientists coming forward and saying, oh, he got that wrong, he got that wrong. So that's natural and to be expected, right? So you have a proliferation of these estimates. But there's also the question of how this was used by the Trump administration and whether that begins to create any sort of discomfort on your side. Has there been discomfort about the way this has been used? I'd say, you know, as a group, because there's a big group here doing it, and it's sort of a misnomer to call it the Chris Murray model. It's it's the IHME model and a big team here with an awful lot of people contributing and working really long hours. And, you know, as a parenthetical note, we have zero funding to do this, by the way. This is just something we're doing as a public service and, you know, a tremendous amount of volunteer time. But anyway, that, that aside... Discomfort, I think the, I would frame our view about anxiety that we are cognizant that, you know, groups like FEMA and others are looking to make very difficult resource allocation decisions. So they're looking for some guidance on where the epidemic is going to be worse and the, the excess demand will be worse. And we recognize that since we're the only state specific model that's really addressing that issue, if we don't do the best possible job that, you know, we can let people down. And so we're really focused on trying to get it right. I think part of getting it right is using all the data that's coming in. And there's so much more data coming in than even two weeks ago, but also just trying to make the models better, right? We're trying to, you know, do the analog of forecasting the weather, but it's as if we are forecasting the weather, lots of data coming in, and we're trying to build the weather forecasting tools. This whole pandemic started rather recently. So coming up with robust forecasting tools means that we need to constantly be seeing, are we getting it right? And because it matters about getting it right, we're pretty concerned about that. I want to turn to my co-host, Andrew Schwartz, to come in here now. Andrew? Thank you very much, Steve. And and Chris, thanks for being with us today. I wanted to ask you if your model can tell us what a rolling reopening of the economy would look like and what that would do to your projections? Yeah, so it's a great question. You know, we started out really focused on helping hospitals because we actually thought that given the the enormity of what was happening, what was going to happen is that people would recognize that social distancing is the way to put the brakes on transmission and it would be widely implemented and maintained until we're sort of through this first wave. Now we're having this rolling opening issue. Understandable. There's this enormous economic dislocation and our political leaders are trying to balance the economic effects versus the the health effects. And then we're into really uncharted territory in a sense, which is how big is the risk of rebound? And then what can we do to mitigate that risk or minimize that risk? And that's a very different question to ask. It's now the one that we're very focused on seeing if we can use our blend, if you will, of statistical approaches and some of the more 
typical infectious disease dynamic modeling approaches to see if we can get an answer to that. I think of that as in very simplistic terms, which is if people start to take the brakes off social distancing and there's still a lot of infectious individuals in the community that can go back to transmitting once social distancing comes off, then we will start to see the return unless the public health service and our clinic, you know, testing strategies can remove enough of them from the community to sort of keep it below takeoff. And that's the big question. How capable are different states in doing that? And what's a number that's reasonable for them to find contact trace and quarantine? We think that number is pretty small, right? The, the wherewithal doesn't really exist. You know, there are various reports out of China that they had 10,000 people, 10,000 doing door-to-door contact tracing and investigation in Wuhan. We don't have 10,000 in the country to do that. And so there's no chance of that level of intensity. The only way we think it's going to be reasonable on the rolling openings is to look for states where the caseload is super low, like one per million. And then there might be a reasonable prospect of when those people show up at a clinic or a hospital or a testing site for going back to work, they get found, trace contacts, and we sort of keep the brakes. It raises all sorts of other really hard issues, which I don't think we've ever thought about in the U.S., which is, let's say Washington or California can roll back sooner because we're earlier in the process. We've had pretty good social distancing. How do we stop reinfection from places that are much later? Are we going to screen everybody at the state border? Are we going to like open up, you know, make a trade off? We're going to open up business and, and restrict domestic travel. But if you let free mixing and travel, you know, very soon the states that want to open up early shouldn't be because they're going to look very much like the states that are later in the course. And I don't think that discussion has played out yet. Do you have a sense yet of which states might be safe to reopen? Well, we are planning to come up with our best effort at answering that question tomorrow, where we're going to basically have a map and say, here's our criteria, one case per million. And here's what you would have to have in place, even at that level, you know, contact tracing, testing, quarantine, some effort at control of reinfection from outside the state. And then this is the earliest date you should consider. And so we'll have those numbers. We're working on that most of last night, most of today, because we feel there's an urgency to get out some evidence base on that before decisions are made in the abstract about you know who should open up when. Will you be doing estimates of what happens when there's premature opening without reopening, without adequate controls in place in terms of the estimates of resurgence and fatality rates? Because I think those numbers are going to be very, very important in this debate because clearly the White House is marching ahead on its own pace without really making a commitment on fulfilling those requirements that everyone's talking about. So we're going to see a lot of pressure. Obviously, there's tension in the decision power between the federal and the state and municipal levels, and there's going to be some negotiation, but it's going to be a sloppy reopening by almost all measures. This is why we feel extreme urgency of getting something out there that, that you know, our models may be wrong, 
but at least we could have something out there to say, here's how we got to these dates. Because, you know, if we take too long to do that, the decisions are going to have been made. And then we may really regret those decisions pretty quickly. You know, we've already done a little bit of what you're describing for our state house here, for our governor, Governor Inslee, who asked, you know, what would happen if I, I'm being pressured to open up? What would happen if I open up next week? And so there, that's just too early. We see the rebound pretty quickly. You know, by June, we would be sort of seeing, again, a really big increase in deaths. It's a pretty quick rebound. And so, yes, we will try to produce those. Those are going to take us a little bit longer. There is a intangible factor that's now emerging that I think is going to complicate that discussion. And that is we may be seeing evidence of seasonality now. And that, you know, the strangely to us, the global epidemic seems to have been flat in terms of deaths. Like you just add up the deaths around the world. It, it's not continuing on the exponential growth, right? It's, it's actually flattened out. Now, that could be just because of the way it gets seeded into different populations. But we were we were expecting, you know, exponential growth in Mexico and Brazil and a number of other places in Indonesia. And it's not. And so I think many people watching the epidemic more globally are wondering, is that just bad data? I mean, there's a lot of things it could be, but the possibility that there's marked seasonality or or substantial seasonality can't be ruled out. And then that's going to really make this whole national discussion really quite tricky because the temptation will be to latch onto that and open up quickly. And that might be wrong. And then maybe the summer is going to be pretty quiet and people are going to forget pretty quickly. And we're going to roll into the fall and we're going to face a rebound that we're ill prepared for. What happens with hotspots that you're really worried about? And can you talk about some of those hotspots? Well, you know, the thing that's just extraordinary and after the fact, I think people are going to want to dig into why is just the magnitude of the New York epidemic, right? Nobody saw this coming in terms of how quickly it went up. We called the peak. And I think predicting the peak is easier than predicting the magnitude in some sense in some places. And so there's an element here that we're not clear. There's theories about mass transit and, you know, density, all sorts of ideas. But even then, that doesn't quite explain what we're seeing, right? And so other places that we are tracking, you know, Louisiana appears to have peaked coming down. A big shift in what we're doing now is to try to take advantage of the mobility data that's being reported by many cell phone app users, Google, SafeGraph, Descartes, Labs, some Facebook. There's a bunch of these uh, mobility assessments. Those mobility assessments are pretty interesting because they tell us about which states have had bigger declines and therefore likely more social distancing than others. And we are trying to build that into some of our models uh, now, and that that's going to change our assessment of where we think future hotspots might be. Where do you think the most acute vulnerabilities are today? In terms of states? States or urban centers? You know, so far, the data look pretty encouraging for the West Coast. You know, I think there is a difference between Northern and Southern California. So there's sort of lingering questions about L.A., but nothing really overwhelming. The other centers that were, you know, were on the upswing, Michigan, Illinois, it's becoming a bit hard to tell 
because of this bizarre uh, Monday-Sunday problem. I don't know if you've heard about this, but basically there's a big underreport on Sundays and Mondays, and then they catch up on Tuesday. So we see this really crazy pattern where you're going up, looks like they peaked Sunday and Monday, and then they catch up and there's double the deaths on Tuesday. What is that all about? It's basically because the government tracking bureaucracy gets behind on the weekend. And you'd think in a pandemic that wouldn't be happening, but it's so marked and it's happening in many, many places. And it really throws us off when we're trying to understand who's peaking and who's not and where do we think there's still exponential growth or not. But here's the thing on the hotspot issue. Currently, we don't think there's going to be a big explosion that we haven't seen yet, because when you do look at the mobility data, even in states that have had less stringent mandates, there's been a really marked reduction pretty much everywhere. There's few exceptions to that in the mobility data, meaning that Americans have listened to the media and are concerned. They're pretty anxious. And that seems to be putting the brakes on transmission. So I don't think we're going to see like a new New York erupt in the next two weeks. That's not what we're expecting. Because the social distancing does work, correct? Definitely works. We now, you know, we had one place it worked, Wuhan. Now we have about 25, you know, in Spain and Italy and, you know, King County and, and Louisiana. So we know it works, New York. So there's not, that's not in doubt. And now we know from the mobility data that there's a lot of social distancing. It's not uniform, but it's really quite a lot everywhere. So I don't think we're expecting a new New York in the U.S. in our numbers. We're expecting the continuation of what's been happening. And the other thing that we're seeing in the data that we're trying to understand is that sometimes the the peak is much longer than what we originally thought. Because if you looked in, in Europe, for example, in many places, the peak, it went up and then it just comes down. But now that we're seeing these sort of protracted, slow declines at the top, we're trying to also factor, understand what's driving that. Why? And we think what it is, is there's sub epidemics, you know, within different, let's say, you know, uh, socioeconomic groups that are slightly differently timed. And so you get a peak and then you get a little bit of a delayed peak in a different group and a delayed peak in a different group. And what that looks like for a city or a state is a pretty flat line at the top. Why does that matter? Well, it extends the epidemic out into the future a little bit more, and it's also going to increase the death toll if that peak lasts for five or six or seven days as opposed to a couple of days, which is what we originally thought. Chris, this experience we've had with the pandemic and the role you've stepped into in terms of forecasting and that the, the, the modeling that others are doing, does this imply that looking into the future that there's going to be the will within the U.S. government to establish a disease forecasting capacity that doesn't exist today. Do you think that's one of those structural changes that we're going to come away from this experience and say, why couldn't we do this? And let's figure it out. I think there's two things they need and maybe it'll happen. I'm, I'm not super confident about that, Steve. But I think the lesson to me from this is the extraordinary power of daily, timely data. And if the government 
could know about hospital admissions every day, which should not be difficult. We still don't have it. But if they did, incredibly powerful for tracking future outbreaks and even just disease in general and making disease forecasts. To me, the big missing ingredient is, you know, tapping into resources that the data is being collected. It's just the systems to get that on a daily basis aren't there. You know, most of the claims based systems or other systems are huge lags built into them. And, you know, you even have US CDC putting out numbers that are weekly because they either don't want to show daily or they don't get it daily. And, you know, in, in this sort of case, weekly numbers aren't super helpful, right? A lot happens in a week. And it's been remarkable to me that the federal government does not have routine access to daily admissions, which is probably the strongest number or daily ICU as well. Like, why not? Why, why don't we have this information for every state? It's just out there. Everybody can see it. And what we do have is cases and deaths with these really confusing lags built in, depending on the state. So there's a real potential, which I do think there may be impetus for, to just like get a better daily information system. And then you can piggyback on top of that modeling, right? I'm not sure that the government is there yet to, to do their own modeling because they're very much bringing in to this task people who've been modeling other diseases like flu and being trying to answer different types of questions like, you know, what vaccine to put out and when. So I, I do think the impetus may be there to improve the data systems, and, and that'll be hugely helpful. Thank you. Andrew? I think this has been great. Dr. Murray, thank you so much for your time today. We really learned a lot from your insights. Thank you for all Americans for the work that you and your team are doing. And we hope to be able to talk to you again as uh, your work continues. Well, thanks for the thanks. We get a crazy amount of hate mail, I got to tell you. It's amazing how once you're out there with some numbers, you just get a lot of people who don't like you. But we'll, we'll, we'll stay the course. Coming from multiple directions, correct? Oh, yeah. We're either too high, we're too low. We're responsible for killing the economy every direction. It's unbelievable. Well, stay safe and keep doing what you're doing. It's a tremendous service to the American people and to the world. Thanks. Really appreciate it.